You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus... Tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. So here's a question to start uh, this podcast off with. Who was the first celebrity to ever appear on the cover of TV Guide magazine? Here are your choices. Was it one, Lucille Ball, two, Jerry Lewis, three, Groucho Marx, four, Dinah Shore, or five, Ed Sullivan? I'll let you ponder over that for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Now, as a collector of obscure, long-forgotten stories, I finally decided this summer it was time to organize my ever-growing pile of possible podcast topics. It was quite a stack. It was probably, you know, maybe about two feet high. In the end, I ended up with quite a stack of folders that were sorted by general topic. You know, there's one for crime, another for transportation, and the biggest was surprisingly for animals and pets. And of course, being a high school science teacher, I also have a folder for what I consider to be very interesting stories on teachers. Then I was thinking back, I don't think I've ever done a podcast on teachers, so that's what I'm going to do today. So about a week ago, I gave my friend and commuting partner, Barb, an overview of my four favorite teacher stories, and this is the one that was ultimately decided upon. So let me introduce you to someone I consider to be a great biology teacher, Miss Rose Freistatter. She studied hard, she passed all the exams required at the time for a teaching license, and she was very well liked by fellow teachers, administrators, and students. For three years, she served as a substitute teacher at the James Monroe High School in the Bronx, the chairman of the biology department, that's Mr. George C. Wood, gave her a glowing letter of recommendation. Quote, it is with a distinct sense of satisfaction that I am able to recommend her to any position or work to which she may be assigned by her superiors. In other words, Rose Fry said it was everything one would want in a qualified teacher. In fact, no one ever questioned her qualifications for the job. Everyone agreed that she was excellent at what she did. So you may be surprised to hear that the Board of Examiners for the New York City Board of Education denied her a teaching license. Why, you may ask? Very simple. Rose was overweight. Today this would not be a valid reason, but this was way back in 1931 when teachers were fired for the most absurd things like being too beautiful, having a child, smoking cigarettes, consuming an alcoholic beverage, or speaking out against the Ku Klux Klan. These things really did happen. Rose stood 5 feet 2 inches tall and weighed 182 pounds, or about 157 centimeters and 83 kilograms. 
under the board rules at the time, someone of her height needed to weigh under 150 pounds or 68 kilograms to receive a teaching certificate. So you're probably wondering what rationale the Board of Ed could possibly have to justify such a policy. Well, they offered up several reasons. First, they considered overweight teachers to be a pension risk. The argument was that the heavier a teacher was, the more likely that person was to retire at a younger age and become a greater drain on the pension fund. Now, oddly, once someone was granted a teaching license, the board never ever checked their weight again. Next, they stated, quote, teachers must climb stairs, take part in fire drills, and be able to handle all real school emergencies. Overweight teachers are less likely to stand the strain of teaching. And lastly, and this is the really scary part, they felt that overweight teachers were not proper role models for the students, quote, from an aesthetic point of view. Did any of these points really carry much weight with the public? Well, not really. The board had made its decision and they were adamant in their stance. It didn't matter what the public thought. They weren't budging. They did, however, agree to allow Rose an additional six months to get her weight down to the 150-pound maximum. Now, clearly she was unable to meet that goal, because if she had, there'd probably be no story to tell. Instead, the board received a letter from Rose that said she was only able to shed 22 of the needed 32 pounds that they requested she lose. Rose explained that her mom had fallen ill and that prevented her from devoting her entire attention to her weight loss. It didn't matter. The board refused to grant her an extension. It turns out they had been denying teaching licenses to both underweight and overweight teachers for the previous 10 years. So really this was nothing new. Nearly all the teachers either gained or lost the mandated weight during that six month grace period or they simply let their application slide. So let's move forward to May of 1935. This is after Rose had completed several years of substitute teaching, and she decided that she was going to be the one to challenge this unjust policy. 26-year-old Rose opted to appeal to the head honcho up in Albany, the New York State Commissioner of Education. Needless to say, the press had a field day with the story, it went national almost instantaneously. A reporter for the New York Times approached various faculty members of the Teachers College at Columbia University to get their thoughts on this question. Quote, Do you think that in the teaching profession, efficiency decreases in inverse proportion to mass? To which Professor N.L. Engelhart replied, quote, If you mean do I think the fatter a teacher is, the more inefficient he is, I do not. The fattest man I ever knew, President Taft, was also the best teacher I ever knew. Dr. Fanny W. Dunn commented, quote, The teacher teaches with the brain, which is the seat of learning and personality. She continued, There are good fat teachers and good thin teachers, and bad teachers of both types. But my favorite response was from Professor Dr. George S. Counts. While he understood the Board of Education's concern over the risks for hiring heavier teachers, he stated, quote, But I think for the good of the children, teachers should die young, so fat teachers have the best of it. Aside from that, the matter of weight is entirely irrelevant to the question of efficiency in the classroom. I don't know about you, but I detect a bit of sarcasm in his reply. 
Charles Brownell, a health education professor, took the opposite stance. Quote, the teacher should represent in body and mind everything that the child should want to become. Overweight is a defect similar to any orthopedic defect and should be classed as such. In the meantime, Rose's weight returned back to the 180 pounds that it was before. In an effort to lose the 30 pounds by August 28th, that was the day she was scheduled to appear before the state commissioner, she enrolled in a field course at the Cornell Summer School in Ithaca, New York. For six weeks, she rode horseback, hiked 10 miles, or 16 kilometers, and played tennis each and every day. So how much weight did she lose from all of this exercise? Believe it or not, none. Zilch, nada. Instead, she decided to just stop trying. Quote, I am not going to ruin my health trying to get thin to teach New York City school children. Her dad commented to a reporter, quote, She's a sturdy, solidly built girl, and it would be dangerous to her health to reduce. It was also pointed out that her family was, quote, long-lived, and that Rose was able to walk up five flights of stairs to their apartment at 1995 Davidson Avenue each and every day without any problem. From what I was able to piece together from the various news accounts, that August 28th hearing with the commissioner did not occur because Rose lacked proper legal counsel. So she secured the services of attorney Harry Mabel and a new appeal was filed on October 15th with a hearing date scheduled for Wednesday, December 11th. And it was on that day, December 11th, that a new Rose Fry status was revealed to the world. She walked into the hearing weighing a svelte 154 pounds. That was just four pounds over the Board of Education's limit, and that was with all her clothes on. How did she do it? Through a combination of diet, exercise, and massage, all done under the guidance of her physician, Dr. Gerald Schumann. Now, the massage probably did very little to reduce her weight, but an article in the December 17th issue of the Washington Post detailed her diet. While she wasn't living on air, it was very clear that Rose had severely restricted her caloric intake to reduce her weight. While comparison pictures of Rose before and after the weight loss were printed in the newspapers to, you know, let's face it, to sell more papers, what happened during the proceedings of the hearings was really of more importance to Rose. Her attorney, Mr. Mabel, argued that New York City's Board of Examiners had overstepped their bounds in specifying the physical qualifications for teaching candidates. Only the Board of Education, on the recommendation by the Board of Superintendents, had the authority to set any such policies. Of course, the attorney representing New York City stuck to the original argument that Rose Freistad was simply a health risk to the pension system. In the end, Rose's fight was for nothing. On March 13, 1936, Education Commissioner Frank P. Graves dismissed the appeal on a technicality. Basically, Rose was given 30 days to appeal the Board of Education's original decision, but she took nearly four years to file an appeal. Quote, The only reason advanced for this delay is her ignorance of her right to appeal. Under the circumstances, this is not sufficient cause. Rose was once again in the news in late July of 1937, but this time it was not for anything that she had done since her appeal was denied. 
Instead, the New York City Board of Education had received an application from a 23-year-old man named Joseph P. McDonald. He wanted to become a health teacher. The problem was he stood 6 foot 2 inches tall, that's 188 centimeters, and he tipped the scales at 287 pounds or 130 kilograms. So what did the board decide to do after the Rose Freistatter fiasco? Believe it or not, they granted him a teaching license after being told that he was, quote, the perfect physical specimen. How ironic. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Say, kids... If you've been wondering how Rusty trains Rennie to do all those tricks, listen carefully. I'm going to let you in on the secret. First of all, keep the lessons short. Secondly, and most important, give him Milk Bone Dog Biscuit as a reward. When your dog knows that he's going to get a reward of Milk Bone for learning his tricks, well, you just watch how fast he learns. And Milk Bone is good for your dog. It gives him the vitamins, minerals, and proteins that he needs for good health. In fact, Milk Bone Dog Biscuit is packed with more energy per pound than prime beefsteak. But Milk Bone does even more than supply your dog with the nourishment he requires. It gives him the chewing and gnawing exercise he should have for strong teeth and healthy gums without the fear of dangerous bone splinters. So just ask Mom to get Milk Bone Dog Biscuits in the famous red and yellow box the next time she goes shopping. It comes in three sizes, small, medium, and large. A size for every dog. All good dogs deserve Milk Bone. That commercial for Milk Bone Dog Biscuits is from the November 27, 1955 broadcast of The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin. This particular episode was titled The White Buffalo. As a side note, one of my favorite books of the past several years was Rin Tin Tin, The Life and Legend by Susan Orlean. It's highly recommended if you're looking for a good book to read, and you don't have to be into dogs either. Milkbone Dog Biscuits were first marketed back in 1908 by the F.H. Bennett Biscuit Company, which was located in New York City. The bone-shaped treats were stamped with the initials M.M.B., which stood for the Maltoid Milkbone, its original name. The last mention I could locate of the name Maltoid in its advertisements was back in January of 1915. After that, it was shortened to the more familiar Milkbone. The original Maltoid treats came in two sizes, one for adults and a two-thirds size for puppies. The company was acquired by the National Biscuit Company, which of course we know by the name Nabisco today, in 1935. The company was then sold to Del Monte in 2006, which divested all of its pet products under the Big Heart Pet Brands in 2014. 
Last year, Big Heart was purchased by Smuckers. What I found most interesting is that the entire line of Milkbone Biscuits is manufactured in Buffalo, New York, which in 2009 became Del Monte's first landfill-free facility. So here are a few more stories about teachers who lost their jobs for unusual reasons. Now, if you thought I was kidding that a teacher could be fired for being too pretty, just check out this headline from the November 18, 1906 issue of the Hammond Lake County Times. Quote, Ms. McGraw pays penalty. Teacher who is too attractive dropped by the Board of Education. It seems that Genevieve McGraw was asked to resign from her teaching position in Hammond, Indiana by Superintendent C.M. McDaniel. From what I can piece together from the various newspaper stories, McDaniel received numerous complaints about Ms. McGraw's life outside the school and he had no choice but to fire her. The exact nature of what she did wrong was never revealed, but was hinted at with claims that she was both too pretty and too popular. The public felt that she had been wronged, and numerous people, including many of her students, asked the board for her reinstatement. But that did nothing to change the decision. The superintendent asked the board to pay Ms. McGraw the $16, which is about $425 today, to pay her the $16 that was owed to her for her services, and then she handed in her resignation. My guess is that there was a little bit more to the story than just being too pretty. In our next story, on November 29th of 1911, the New York City Board of Education barred four young teachers from the classroom because their young children had caused them to be absent from school far too many times. As a result, a new policy was put into place that forbid women with young children from being teachers in the New York City school system. Should a woman have a child while employed by the district, she was given only two options. One, resign from her position, or two, be fired. If a woman chose to resign, she could apply to be rehired once her children had grown. But if she opted to let the Board of Education terminate her employment, then she could never, ever work for the New York City school system again. It was pointed out in the article that it was an existing policy of the school board never to hire married female teachers, that is, unless their husbands were mentally or physically unable to support them. Now, they could marry after being hired, but clearly, based on this new regulation, they could not retain their position after giving birth to a child. Chairman of the Elementary Schools Committee, Abraham Stern, stated, quote, A married woman's proper sphere is the home if she has a family. A woman who has infant children to rear has no business trying to take care of these and at the same time teach school. He continued, a mother places her children first, just as the Board of Education places first the children it provides for. And in our last tidbit for today, Mary S. McDowell started working for the New York City school system on January 29th of 1905, and she was considered by all to be a great teacher. She taught Latin, English, and patriotism at the Manual Training School in Brooklyn, and everything seemed to be going great until the outbreak of World War I. All teachers in public schools were required by law, the so-called Lusk Laws, to sign a loyalty pledge to demonstrate their patriotism and support a democracy. But Ms. McDowell refused to sign the pledge, and that's because she was a Quaker, and her religious beliefs prevented her from taking any part in the war effort. 
Surprisingly, fellow teachers reported her refusal to the Board of Education, and she was brought up on charges of, quote, conduct unbecoming of a teacher. On June 19, 1918, in a four-to-nothing ruling, the board terminated her employment. For the remainder of the war, she was unable to find suitable work. When the war ended, the Lusk Laws were repealed, and in June of 1923, the Board of Education agreed to reconsider her case. On July 11, 1923, they unanimously agreed to reinstate Miss McDowell to her position at Manual Training High School. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. At the beginning of the podcast, I asked you who was the first celebrity to ever appear on the cover of TV Guide magazine. So I decided to go out and ask some of my friends to see what they had to say. Ed Sullivan. Groucho Marx. Um, Groucho Marx. Lucille Ball. Uh, I'm going to guess Groucho Marx. Ed Sullivan. Lucille Ball. So there you go. Out of my small sampling, I had two for Lucille Ball, three for Groucho Marx, and two for Ed Sullivan. No one chose Jerry Lewis or Dinah Shore. In fact, some people didn't know who Dinah Shore was. So which one did you pick? When the first issue of TV Guide appeared on newsstands on April 3rd, 1953, the front cover featured a very large picture of a newborn baby named Desiderio Alberto Arnez IV, who is better known as Desi Arnez Jr. Bright red bold lettering at the top simply said, Lucy's $50 million baby, with a smaller picture of his mom, Lucille Ball, in the upper right. Desi Jr. was delivered by cesarean on January 19, 1953, the same exact day that Lucy gave birth to her fictional baby, Little Ricky, on the classic show I Love Lucy. It has been estimated that 71.7% of all TV sets were tuned in to see that particular episode, which was called Lucy Goes to the Hospital. I have to admit it's among my favorite episodes of any TV show of all time. It really is a classic. Lucille Ball appeared on the cover of TV Guide a record 40 times. Tonight Show host Johnny Carson comes in second with 28 covers, and this is followed by Mary Tyler Moore and Michael Landon with 27 covers apiece. Michael Landon is also the only person to appear on three consecutive covers of the magazine. Now, Sadly, those are all around the time of his death on July 1st of 1991. Well, that's it for this episode of the Useless Information Podcast. Additional true stories just like the ones you just heard can be found on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. And in the two books written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. 
You can like the show on Facebook. Just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast on Facebook. And, of course, be sure to subscribe to the podcast using your favorite uh, you know, podcast software. And uh, you'll get updates when new episode is released. As always, I thank you for listening. I hope you tune in the next time. Bye.